0: you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I have have been preaching the gospel for 47 years. Probably a shock to some of you, didn't think I was even that old. But, this is the third time that I have preached through the book of Romans. And looking back over my notes uh, from previous times, uh, apparently... Uh, I, I don't know what I'm talking about with in reference to these verses because I've just been all over the proverbial map as to what exactly I believe about them. Uh, Romans 6 and 7 are especially difficult uh, and there are differing opinions from conservative scholars as to what they mean. So if as we're going... If you say, "Well, no, I, you know, I don't, I don't think I follow that. I don't think I believe that." It's okay. It's fine, uh, because there are, uh, you know, a lot smarter people than me and you who don't agree with me either. But, you know, unfortunately, I don't get to preach your convictions. Just mine. Uh, I, I am somewhat uh, buoyed by the fact that a few years ago, uh, attending a seminar at, at Southern Seminary, I had a chance to sit down and talk with Dr. T- Tom Schreiner who is one of the foremost New Testament theologians in the world. Uh, And uh, he confided to me that he also has kind of been all over the map as to what he believes about Romans. Now, I I wouldn't have you think I'm good friends with Dr. Schreiner. I'm I'm not. He would speak to me if he saw me on the street, but he would you, too, because he's a very gracious man. But I just had the opportunity to talk to him. Two theologians that I do know personally, that I trust, and and that uh, I value their advice, uh, are one is Shane Arnold, who is a part of our uh, assembly, and my oldest son. So I was talking with David this week about Romans six, seven, and nine, and I said, you know, these are these are chapters that are so difficult to comprehend, and he said, Dad, six and seven are hard to comprehend. Nine is easy to comprehend. It's just that nobody wants to believe what it says. So that may be true too. But Dr. Schreiner points out in his commentary on Romans that this is a very difficult section of the book. And there have been much controversy about uh, what Paul is talking about here. For instance, many scholars posit that water baptism is not in view at all in Romans chapter six, some that I read after that I greatly admire. But I agree with Dr. Schreiner that spirit baptism and water baptism were so inextricably linked in the mind of Paul and first century believers that they could scarcely conceive of them being separated. So I think water baptism is in view here. And the first question obviously that arises when we look at the text, is what does Paul mean when he says that we have died to sin? How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Uh, I remember seeing a, a, a cartoon in Leadership Magazine a few years back, and two couples were talking, and, and one woman says, well, I, I don't think I've actually died to sin. But I did feel kind of faint one time. That, that's kind of the way I guess most of us feel about Romans uh, chapter 6 verse 2. Sometimes I have to admit I don't feel very dead to sin. Sometimes I don't even feel faint to be honest with you. Uh, but what is Paul talking about? What does he mean? Uh, and it it's not just that he says it one time either. Uh, as we're going through this chapter... If you think I'm repeating myself, I will be because Paul repeats himself. I mean, he mentions it in verse 3, verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 11, and 13. So being dead to sin is obviously something that Paul considers to be uh, very crucial, very important to living the Christian life. And yet it's so very difficult to understand because a lot of times we don't feel very dead to sin. Uh, Commentators differ, but most agree that in Romans 6, Paul turns from the subject of justification to the subject of sanctification, or how we grow in holiness. Now, that is not by any means universal. Again... Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is one of my favorite authors uh, ever, disagrees rather vehemently with that viewpoint. And there are other good men who follow him. And it's difficult for me to disagree with someone who I love to read after as much as I do uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones. And they may be right. Uh, But even though the section obviously flows out of chapter five, as Lloyd-Jones argues with the, the then, what shall we say then? It seems to me that Paul is beginning a, a new thing, and he will pursue it to the end of, of chapter 8. If we have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then how do we grow in grace? We have seen that justification deals with the penalty of sin. Our sins are forgiven. All of our sins are imputed to Christ. All of His righteousness is imputed to us. But then how can we live a holy life now that the power of sin is broken? Chapter 6 falls into two main sections. In the first 14 verses, Paul addresses an objection that he knows will follow from what he has been teaching about God justifying sinners by grace. Alone. Uh, it is apart from any merit. And so he is responding especially to what he said in, in, in verse uh, chapter 5, verse 20. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And the anticipated response is if God's response to increase sin is to pour out superabundant grace, then maybe we should sin as much as we possibly can so that God will be more gracious to us. You remember that that Paul brought up that same objection back in chapter 3 verse 8 where he said they're saying let us do evil that good may come. And his response then was their condemnation is just. Here in chapter 6 verse 2 he uses a uh, negative in the Greek that is so strong it's, it's hard for translators to get it. Personally, I think the ESV here is a little weak. By no means doesn't quite cut it. Maybe maybe the best translation of this is in the Old King James where it says, God forbid. It is a very, very strong negative. Uh, Then he launches into this extended discussion of our being united with Christ in his uh, death and resurrection. In the second section, which is verses 15 through 23, Paul responds to another anticipated uh, objection uh, from 520 that the law came in so that sin would increase, and then his comment that we are not under law but under grace, and the objection is is, are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And he has the same response that he had in verse 2. Again, that very, very, very strong uh, negative. And then he develops an analogy from slavery. So this morning, we're going to look at these first four verses uh, about, and hopefully get some idea of what it means uh, when it says we have died to sin. First of all, there is an implication to reject. Verse 1 is a test of whether you have correctly understood Paul's message up to this point. If, if you've been tracking with him, you know that he we'll be, th- be thinking if God's response to increase sin is abundant grace, we should sin some more. The more we sin, The more grace we get, therefore, we should sin. Since God freely justifies not those who try hard, not those who work for it, but rather those who do not work, and since God justifies not the godly, but the ungodly, not good people, but bad people, then why work at being good? Uh, If God is gracious towards sinners then shouldn't we just sin and ask for grace? I mean, isn't that the way it should work? Uh, One unbeliever of a past day said, I like committing crime. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. Is that the way we should all live? Since God likes forgiving sin, we like sinning, then the world is admirably arranged. But the point is, here's the point, get this. If Paul had been teaching that justification is by faith plus our good works, the objection that he anticipates would never have come up. If I tell you that your salvation comes about by grace and your good works, no one is going to accuse me of antinomianism. No one is going to accuse me of being against the law. No one is going to accuse me of telling people that I'm saying they can sin all they want because every time they sin, grace will abound. Do you see that? Uh, Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in in his book, Preaching and Preachers, uh, said that if you preach God's grace the way that it is written in the Bible, guarantee someone will make this accusation against you. If you preach it clearly and unequivocally, the way the Bible teaches it, someone will say, oh, you're just saying that you can live any way you want after you become a Christian. Uh, If we hedge God's grace, or if we tone it down, then no one's going to accuse us of what Paul says he's been accused of here. But if we understand and teach grace correctly, people will at least think what Paul anticipates. Notice that Paul did not modify his teaching about grace because of this accusation. Paul continued to teach that God justifies the ungodly apart from their works. And that uh, increased sin does lead to abounding grace but that does not mean that we want to sin not at all the objection here fails to take into account that God doesn't justify anyone that he doesn't first regenerate those who have been justified by faith alone have been born again if any man be in Christ he is a new creation Old things pass away. All things become new. I tell people sometimes, I sin all I want. As a matter of fact, I sin a lot more than I want. I don't want to sin. Before I was regenerate, I had no problems with it. But God regenerates before He justifies. He makes us a new creation. And then, secondly we deal with this how can we who died to sin still live in it that's a rhetorical question which expects the answer there's no way that those who died to sin can still live in it should be obvious dead men can't live in sin but that raises a lot of questions. <laughs> If Christians are dead to sin, why do they still sin? Can we attain sinless perfection in this life? Does this teaching mean that we can live above sin? If so, doesn't the statement imply that we attain the state of being dead to sin at the moment of conversion? If not, do we need to work at being dead to sin? I mean, if you are a believer this morning, are you dead to sin or not? Do you need to work at it? Do you need to crucify yourself? What, what, are, we, what are we doing here? What, what does Paul mean when he says that we died to sin? Now, there's a lot of views. I'm not going to go into all of them for the sake of brevity. There's a sigh of relief. Uh, I want to tell you what I think it does not mean than what I think it does mean. Clearly, Paul does not mean that believers cannot sin or that they are somehow immune to temptation. Some teach, well, what he means is you can't be tempted anymore. If you go in a morgue, you can't tempt a man to sin. A corpse is not going to be tempted to sin. They're not going to commit any sin. And so these people teach that Christians are dead to sin that it cannot entice them any longer. But apart from the fact that it's quite obvious that no such Christian is in existence and never has been, it it makes all of the moral commands in the New Testament to be superfluous. Why command me to lust if I can't lust? Why warn me about covetousness if I can't covet? Why... uh, why uh, tell me that I am not to be stealing or greedy or a gossip or unkind or if, if I can't be tempted by any of that then, then why would you even command me not to do those things? Besides the fact that it's quite obvious from reading the Bible that many godly men have fallen into sin. I mean Noah got drunk. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all lied. David committed adultery, then murder. Peter denied the Lord. Uh, Later acted in hypocrisy toward the Gentile believers, as Paul records for us uh, in the book of Acts and Galatians. So, what does it mean? I I think Paul talks about his own struggles with sin in in chapter 7, Bob. So, it does not mean that believers cannot sin or that they are immune to temptation. We've seen already in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, that all of mankind is either identified with Adam under the reign of sin and death, or they're in Christ under the reign of grace through righteousness. No other categories. Everyone on earth is either in Adam are in Christ. By virtue of our physical births, we come into this world in Adam. His sin was imputed to us. When Adam sinned, we sinned. But when we trust in Christ, we are transferred from the headship of Adam under the headship of Christ. And just as Adam's one sin condemned us all, so Christ's act of obedience at the cross justified us all. His grace uh, gives us eternal life. So Paul means that if you are in Christ, when He died on the cross, you died in Him. Now listen carefully. It's not something you feel. It's a fact. It's a fact. Paul says that when Christ died on the cross... You died in Him. God declares it to be true. It's the same thing we talked about with justification. Does justification make you righteous? Or does it declare you righteous? It declares you to be righteous. God declares you righteous based on the work of Christ. The fact that we died to sin is a declaration that God makes about us. It is a fact. If you are in Christ, you're dead to sin whether you feel it or not or whether you even feel faint or not. It is a fact. If Christ, our head, died, then the body died with Him. Uh, That is our new status, our new position before God. Since Christ died to sin and we are in Christ, we have sinned died to sin we derive the benefits of his death because we are now in him here's something i think it's important to remember in the bible sin or death is not primarily cessation it's separation what does it mean to be dead not the clinical definitions but Death is to be separated from life. Those who are not believers, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, are dead in their trespasses and sins. He means that though they have physical life, they are separated from spiritual life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you do not have Christ... You don't have life. You are separated from life, spiritually dead. What happens at physical death? The spirit is separated from the body, but the spirit does not cease to exist. The spirit of man is eternal and lives forever in one of two places. Think of what Jesus said in John chapter 11 to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Clear enough. Jesus said, if you live and believe in me, when you die physically, you'll still be alive. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Then he said, he that lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Well, he that lives and believes in me will never die spiritually, will never be separated from life. Though the Spirit may leave the body, the Spirit will go immediately to be with God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when Paul says that we have died to sin, it means that sin's reign over us has been broken. We have been separated from from the reign of sin and we have been put into the reign of life. I think Paul is saying here the same thing that John says in his letter is that we cannot habitually practice sin since we are no longer under its reign. We can't sin with impunity and tell people, well, you know, I'm a believer but I commit adultery about 14 times a week. It's not a problem. The more I sin, the more grace God gives me. what's well, a great thing. No, we cannot practice sin because its reign over us has been broken. We have been separated from the reign of sin and placed in the reign of life in Christ. So I don't think he's talking about committing acts of sin, but rather about living in sin as a way of life. Same thing John says, 1 John 3, 9, no one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him, he cannot sin because he's born of God. John doesn't mean that we, that we don't sin because he's already said in John 1.9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He said in 2.1 that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Anyone who says he has not sinned makes God out to be a liar. He means that those who are born of God cannot continue in their old way of life that was characterized by sin. The new birth removes them from it. So both both John and Paul are saying the same thing. Paul is saying here that being dead to sin means that you have been separated from its reign in your life. And you no longer will live habitually practicing sin does not mean you will not still sin. It also means, by the way, you can't enjoy it. You know, sin is pleasurable for a season, and unbelievers greatly enjoy it. That, that I sometimes it's fruitless to tell people, you know, who are in sin, you know, they're miserable. No, they're not. At least they don't think they are. You know, they're having a great time. We're the ones that's miserable. We don't get to sin all we want to. All right, then he says in 3 and 4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Boy, verse 3 generates a lot of controversy. Is Paul talking about the baptism of the Spirit? Or is he talking about baptism in water? If he means water baptism... Is he saying that the act of baptism itself conveys all of these benefits? Well, again, I'm not going to go into all the theories. I think that Paul here is referring to the spiritual reality that takes place at salvation that water baptism symbolizes. He's talking about the spiritual reality that takes place at salvation that is symbolized by water baptism. Keep in mind that all of the apostles associated saving faith with water baptism to such an extent that an unbaptized believer would have been foreign to them. The, an unbaptized believer, no. In the evangelical church in the 20th century, we've replaced baptism with walking an aisle. The early church didn't do that. As a matter of fact, walking an aisle didn't come in at all until the very latter part of the 19th century. So how did people profess faith in Christ? How did people publicly profess faith in Christ? They were baptized. They came forward and were baptized in water to symbolize the spiritual reality. Paul assumes that all of those in Rome have been baptized. All who've been baptized, all of us believe. And baptism always followed faith in Christ rather quickly. Dr. Schreiner points out again in his commentary that the idea of separating water baptism and spirit baptism would have been completely foreign to the Apostle Paul. The two were inextricably linked together. And I'm not going to go into this here either, but by the way, there is no evidence in the New Testament of infant baptism. It's just not... There, there's no evidence that it was practiced, and there's no evidence to support such a practice. Uh, now, there, there are some, there are many in the world who do practice infant baptism. I don't think they're heretics. I don't think they're unbelievers. I just think they're wrong. I, I just think that the inferences that are in the Bible do not support infant baptism at all. You know, and the examples that are given, like the Philippian jailer. Well, he and his whole household were baptized. Yes, but before that it says they believed. They believed and were baptized. And that is the pattern throughout the New Testament. They are believed and then they are baptized in order to convey again that reality. What, what does water baptism picture? What are we doing when we are baptized in water? It's identification. We are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And the word, by the way, too, clearly means to immerse. Even John Calvin said it meant that. Uh, To be baptized into Christ's death is to be totally identified with Christ in His death. When He paid the penalty of death for sin, we paid the penalty in Him. When he died to sin, conquering its power, we who believe in him died to sin and its power. Why does Paul emphasize not only his death, but the fact that he was buried through baptism? I think for the same reason he does when he talks about the gospel being of first importance. I delivered it to you, how that Christ died for our sins and was buried. Why buried? Because as a general rule, you don't bury people that are still alive. The fact that Christ is buried means that he was dead. Same thing with us. That's what is symbolized in in water baptism. Death has occurred. We have been removed from identification with the reign of sin. To say that we are buried with Christ means we really died with Him. Baptism by immersion pictures this when a person goes under the water. Think about it. If the preacher held the person underwater long enough, they'd really die. There's been a few, I don't know. But anyway, it, it is a matter of being identified. Immersion pictures that spiritual reality. When we believed in Christ... We became fully identified with him in his death and burial. And we are united with him in that historic action. And coming out of the water pictures Christ identifying with him in resurrection. We are buried with him, death. We rise to walk in newness of life. Water baptism pictures Our death, burial, and resurrection with Christ, which took place historically when Christ died, was buried, and rose again on behalf of His people whom He has redeemed. Uh, That was applied to us the moment that we believed, but we express it symbolically in water baptism. That's why everyone who professes faith in Christ should be baptized in water for that is the way that you publicly say to the world I have I am identifying with Christ I've died with him so then there's an obedience to render just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life Christ was raised bodily from the dead not just spiritually but spiritually we were in Him, so that when He was raised in victory over sin and death, we were raised too. We will not receive our resurrection bodies uh, until we reach glory. And at that time, we will be completely free from sin. But before then, the action on our part as a result of our spiritual resurrection with Christ Is that we should walk in newness of life we should walk in newness of life paul says that we walk in newness of life being raised from the dead by the glory of the father Uh, as a result of our union with christ and his resurrection we're not to sin all that we want we're to walk in newness of life we're to walk as those who have died to sin and been raised to newness of life. Our whole worldview changes. God's Word transforms our mind. Our motive for what we do is no longer selfish, but rather for the glory of God. Our attitude in trials is not complaining, but rather we're thankful to God. Our emotions are to be marked by joy uh, and hope. Our character should be developing the fruit of the Spirit. Our use of time and money should be evaluated in terms of eternal values. And we should be walking in consistent obedience to the commands of God, which we know to be for our good and for His glory. So Paul is not talking here about sinless perfection. Rather, he is talking about a direction of life in which we sin less and less as we grow in grace. I realize that this concept is difficult to grasp. Uh, I, I for one, have wrestled with this dead to sin uh, for many, many years. But I think sometimes we complicate it unnecessarily. And I think that comes because... We don't feel too dead to sin. As a matter of fact, we're not feeling even real faint sometimes. But we have to understand that it is not a feeling. It's a fact. This is a fact. Paul said, you're dead to sin. You're dead. Know that. Know that. You have been separated from the reign of sin and death. You are now under the reign of Life and grace through righteousness. Let's pray. Our Father and our God.